Um, let's bow for prayer. Lord, thank you for this hour. Um, Lord, would you please, um, by your spirit, please open our eyes um, to see wonderful things in your word. And Lord, would you open um, my lips to simply speak of you and your truth and help, um, help us to see it clearly and to use it. Lord, would your word have its effect in our lives and in our hearts. Um, bring us conviction where we need it. Lord, bring us encouragement and comfort where we need it. And Lord, help us to see um, you and your son, Jesus Christ, most clearly. Um, and see you glorified in this time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we are now at our uh, last week in the series of prayers and praise of the Old Testament. And um, we are looking in Nehemiah today. We've now made our way um, historically, basically to the end of the Old Testament. Um, and as by, by way of introduction, um, we'll just ask a few quick questions and answer them. I will um, talk about when we are and where we are and then who Nehemiah is. So when exactly are we? Uh, you may or may not still have a timeline from weeks past. It's okay if you don't. Um, but we are in, according to the scripture, the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, the Persian King Artaxerxes. And that would put us in about the year 446 B.C. And that happens to be almost exactly a thousand years after we began. Six weeks ago, we started um, our series in Exodus chapter 15 with Moses' song after the Exodus. The Exodus taking place in about the year 1445 B.C. So we've covered a thousand years of biblical history in six weeks. It's not bad considering that Pastor Dan has spent seemingly months covering about 24 hours of biblical history. But he has reasons for doing that, um, and they're good reasons. So uh, that, that's when we are. Um, sometime before this, almost 100 years before our prayer today, uh, the exile had ended. The Babylonian captivity came to an end in about the year 538 B.C. when the Persian king Cyrus issued the decree that the Israelites could begin to return back to the promised land. So the captivity is over, and it has been over for a while now. Um, a second decree was issued by Cyrus um, to begin to rebuild the temple. And now, today, in our lesson today, um, at this time, the temple was finished. Even some years before, in about the year 517 B.C., it had taken quite a while to do it. But the work was done, the temple was finished, and in fact, um, even before our prayer today, Ezra had been sent back as a priest to Jerusalem to begin to reform what was happening there, uh, making sure that the new temple was being used the way it ought to be, reforming the worship that was taking place there. Um, Ezra's ministry and um, reforms had been done for a dozen or so years by the time that we pick up today in Nehemiah. So that's when we are. Now, where are we today? We are in a place called Susa, S-U-S-A, and it's a place you may not be very familiar with. Um, this is a Babylonian, also a Persian city, 
It's about 150 or 200 miles east of Babylon, the city itself. Of course, Babylon is now the site of present-day Baghdad, basically. Um, so where we are today in Susa is in present-day Iran. Um, Persia, of course, is generally the area of Iran. Um, to give you an idea of how far away that was from Jerusalem, you know, how far are we today from where the Promised Land is? Susa is about 900 miles east of Jerusalem. If you're geographically minded, if you imagine Fort Worth as Jerusalem, and I'll refrain from saying that this is God's holy city, but if Fort Worth was Jerusalem, then Susa would be right about Savannah, Georgia, 900 miles east. So that's where Nehemiah is. Um, and Susa happened to be the winter residence of the Persian kings. They spent the winter there, and there was a beautiful palace apparently built by King Darius, a magnificent place, a citadel in Susa. Um, and Nehemiah is living there in this palace. He is in the service of King Artaxerxes. Uh, he is um, a servant, or perhaps more than that, you might even consider him a slave. He works in Artaxerxes' court. Um, Nehemiah had never even been to Jerusalem. He was born and grew up in Persia. He lived his entire life um, outside of the Promised Land. But he was still a faithful Jew. He was still very faithful to the Lord. Um, in the service of King Artaxerxes, Nehemiah was his cupbearer. And we know what a cupbearer is. This is the man that tastes the wine before he gives it to the king to make sure that there's no poison in it. Um, that's what Nehemiah's job is. And some scholars, not all, but some scholars think that Nehemiah would have also been a eunuch. Now, we don't really know, but some make the case that given what Nehemiah's job was in the king's court, he would have also been moving about sometimes amidst the king's harem. And so given his position, he may have been, and not by choice, a eunuch. But in any event, um, he had never been at liberty to leave. He had been in the king's service there, outside of the promised land his whole life. He was bound to King Artaxerxes. So let's read, if you haven't turned there, to Nehemiah chapter 1. And the first few verses of this chapter will give us some more context, and we'll say a few more words that kind of set up the prayer that we're going to consider. So this is Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning, concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So what's happened? A group of Jews has come from Jerusalem to Susa. This man, Hanani, probably really was Nehemiah's brother by blood. And Nehemiah asks, how are things going in the promised land? What are things like in Jerusalem, in God's holy city? 
The people that have returned in captivity, that have returned from captivity, Nehemiah wanted to know, how are they doing? And I think this is a natural question to ask. And in fact, I kind of used this as my cue this past week. I was able to be at the Shepherds Conference. And that was one of the best questions to ask men that I would meet that are from all over the country, all over the world, in fact. Ask them, what are things like? What's the state of the church where you are? We want to know what's the state of God's people in these various places. And this is what Nehemiah wants to know. And he doesn't get a good report. Things are not going well. Um, The temple, of course, had been rebuilt, but the city itself was apparently in bad shape. Um, The city wall apparently still lays in ruin, and it would have been this way, I think, ever since Nebuchadnezzar's armies had come in many years before this to destroy Jerusalem. I think the walls had been in this sad state for a long time. But why is this so distressing to Nehemiah? Why is he affected the way that he is by this report? Um, It was true that since the temple was restored and rebuilt, worship was taking place there, and that was a good thing. That's one of the things, one of the most important things that God's people wanted when they were in the captivity, was to be able to have the place where they could worship God the way that he had prescribed. So that was good, but, of course, we know that a city's wall is the city's defense, And so I think what Nehemiah understands, given the fact that the wall is broken down and the gates are burned with fire, is that while it's true that God's people are able to worship now in the way they want to, they are actually at great risk that the same thing that happened before could happen again. A city without a wall, without defenses, stands at risk of an invading army, a foreign power coming back in and destroying the city destroying God's people, destroying the temple again. They would have been easy prey for an enemy that might attack, and I think that's what gives Nehemiah such great concern. The city without a wall does not have a defense. And it really is amazing the way that he is moved by this report. Um, What he does in verse 4, he weeps and he mourns for days, he says. He fasts and he prays. And I think this is further evidence similar to what we saw last week um, with Daniel, thinking about Daniel and his three friends in Babylon, the way that God was faithful to preserve Daniel and his friends' faithfulness even in the midst of living in a pagan, heathen land of Babylon. God is doing that also for Nehemiah. And no doubt there were others still in this area of Persia And God is being faithful to them, keeping them in faithfulness, even in the middle of this court of a pagan king. Um, So Nehemiah is deeply moved by what he hears. He's saddened, and he prays. Let's see what he prays, verses 5 through the end of the chapter. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let thine ear now be attentive and thine eyes open to hear the prayer of thy servant, which I am praying before thee now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, thy servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, I and my father's house have sinned. 
we have acted very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which thou didst command thy servant Moses. Remember the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and thy people whom thou didst redeem by great, thy great power and by thy strong hand. O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere in thy name. And make thy servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Now Nehemiah begins his prayer almost identically to the way Daniel did from Daniel chapter 9. Um, he addresses God according to God's greatness, his awesome greatness, as well as to God's loving kindness. And this is not the only thing that this prayer has in common with the prayer we saw last week from Daniel. It really is amazing. Um, I could almost literally use the exact same outline as last week. Because in this prayer of Nehemiah, we see, we see um, Nehemiah's posture, his perspective, and his plea. And we also see God's position and God's promise and God's possession. There are striking similarities between this prayer and Daniel's prayer. But it would probably be bad form for me to teach the same lesson two weeks in a row, so I'll have to use a different approach. Um, but what is unique about this prayer, perhaps compared to any of the other ones we've looked at, is that interestingly, in the very next chapter, chapter 2, we see the way that this prayer is answered. And so we'll take the opportunity today, which we haven't been able to do in the past, is to see the way immediately that Nehemiah's prayer is answered. So we'll just broadly consider his prayer and then the answer. So he opens with worship in verse 5, and then he immediately moves to confession in verses 6 and 7. Um, he confesses his own sin and those of the Jews. I think it's important to note that he doesn't just feel guilty about his sin and the Jews, but he is objectively guilty. He knows that he has sinned and he's guilty of it. But again, you might pause and wonder because Nehemiah wasn't even alive during the captivity, much less before the captivity. Nehemiah wasn't alive in the ministry of Jeremiah or Habakkuk when they were telling Judah, you've got to repent. So Nehemiah himself was not responsible for any of the unfaithfulness that had taken place back in that time. He hadn't even been born yet. So I think it's interesting that he's still praying, confessing his sin and his people's sin, when really he himself bore no responsibility for what happened years before when God said he was going to send judgment for what was happening in Judah. So why is he confessing like this? Well, I think that the end of verse 6 gives us a clue. It gives us a clue also that I think Nehemiah knew the scriptures. At the very end, he says, I and my father's house have sinned. 
I think perhaps in his mind might have been Exodus chapter 34, which you don't have to turn there, but I will. If you'd like to, you can. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we're familiar with this probably. This is when God passes in front of Moses, and this is what he says. Verse 6, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. I think Nehemiah understands that even he himself in his position still basically captive in Susa is he is still experiencing the consequences of his predecessor's sin. His fathers, his grandfathers, those that had come many years before him. He himself was feeling like, I think, that he was living out Exodus 34-7, that their sin that had taken place many years before Nehemiah was even alive was still affecting the situation that Nehemiah found himself in. Um, But at the same time, while that's true and he was confessing sin, I think he also knew Deuteronomy chapter 30, which we looked at last week, which was God's promise, which he basically quotes in verses 8 and 9. God's promise that if people do sin, if his people do sin, and they are exiled and taken captive, then God made the promise from Deuteronomy 30 that if you do confess, if you do repent, then I will bring you back out of your captivity and restore you to the land. Verses 8 and 9 tell us that Nehemiah was confident in that promise, and he was still praying that God would continue to bring it about. I mean, there were still people, I think, living in this area, perhaps still by choice, that simply hadn't gone back to Jerusalem. And there were probably others still in Nehemiah's position or similar to it where they didn't have a way to go back yet. And I think he realizes that God's people's restoration is not entirely complete yet. And so he's praying that it might be. Um, And then in verse 10, this is worth noticing. Um, the words that he uses, I think, refer back to what we saw in Exodus, talking about God redeeming his people with great power and with his strong hand. That's the kind of language that Moses used regarding the way that God brought people out of Egypt. He brought Israel out of Egypt with a strong right hand. We saw that in the first week of our study. Um, And What's interesting about this is is I think that by using language like this, this indicates to us that in the captivity, in the exile, by the time that God finally brought people back, I think that the Jews began to see it as a second exodus. They saw that God's power as well as his mercy and his loving kindness, just like he brought Israel out of Egypt in the same way with his own power and with his loving kindness, he's bringing his people out of Babylon and out of Persia, like a second exodus. So, ultimately, um, Nehemiah is expressing solidarity with his people. He is guilty along with his people. Um, He also expresses confidence in God's promise, asking the Lord, please continue to restore all of us back to the promised land. And then finally, at the end of his prayer, verses 11 and 12, he makes his requests. And his requests are two. 
First of all, simply, he just asked that, Lord, please hear this prayer. Please be attentive to this prayer. That's his first simple request. And secondly, he asked that God would give Nehemiah success and grant him compassion before this man. Now, what is Nehemiah asking for there? Well, the very last little line in the chapter gives us a little foreshadowing when it says, now I was cupbearer to the king. What he's asking for regarding wanting compassion and um, success before this man, he's talking about Artaxerxes. He's talking about the king. Because as we'll go on to see in chapter 2, apparently Nehemiah has a plan that he had been working out even before he prayed this prayer. He has a plan to go before Artaxerxes and ask for something. And so he's asking for success in that moment of going to Artaxerxes to make a request. Then he would only be able to go before Artaxerxes and be that close to him because he was the cupbearer. So, let's see what happens in chapter 2. We'll kind of do this verse by verse, hopefully try to build some suspense. Chapter 2, verse 1. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. First of all, this gives us a little time stamp. Based on the calendar from what we saw in the beginning of chapter 1, to what we see now, these months, tell us that from the time I think that he got Hanani's report of what was going on in Jerusalem from that time at the beginning of chapter 1 until now in the beginning of chapter 2, about four to five months has passed. So some period of time um, has passed, and that's important for us to realize. Um, because what has he been doing during those four to five months? Well, we know that he's been mourning and fasting, weeping, and praying. And I think most of all, what he's been praying for is for this opportunity that he's going to be having in front of Artaxerxes. I think he's been praying for and looking for the right time to bring this request before the king. Because really, as cupbearer, he had a unique opportunity that, you know, no one else in the empire had access to the king the way he did. Really, the history tells us that um, the cupbearer could really develop a friendship with the king. Or maybe vice versa, the king could develop a friendship with this cupbearer. There could have been a very kind of trusted relationship between the two. Even so much so that when he's with the king so often, every time he takes a drink or eats something, and they build a trusting relationship, Really, the cupbearer can become a man that can even give advice or counsel to the king, should the king wish to accept it. And really, I think when we consider it, I think that God's hand of providence is really clearly shown in these first couple of chapters of Nehemiah. They're really displayed in Nehemiah's life. Um, as we continue through chapter 2, we're really going to see that God is ordering these events. As Nehemiah has been patiently waiting and praying, looking for his opening with Artaxerxes, I think we're going to see that God has been preparing the way. Now, when we saw at the end of verse 1 that he had never been sad before in the king's presence, well, so what? What does that mean? 
Well, some commentators think that based on the calendar, the time that this is happening in chapter 2, that this would have been kind of a festival taking place. That what was happening possibly in uh, the king's court, that there could have been a festival going on, a time of celebration. Um, and if that was the case, uh, then we know that the kind of the pagan celebration that would go along with that it would have been a very debauched affair, revelry, drunkenness, and whatnot. And so maybe that would make Nehemiah's sad demeanor stand out all the more in the midst of the celebration that's going on, perhaps. Um, we know that Nehemiah has been preoccupied for quite a few number of months. His heart is sad and heavy. And he realizes that his sadness could get him in trouble in front of the king. If he's never looked this way before in front of the king, then his sadness could be a bad thing for him. So let's see what happens in verse 2. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, somehow, Artaxerxes discerns that Nehemiah is not sick, that really he is just sad. And I think that in and of itself is a little clue to how well Artaxerxes knew his cupbearer. That just by looking at his face, he could kind of determine what's going on in his mind. Um, but if you think about it, if you're the king and you have a man whose job it is to taste, to test something, and he's just given you the glass of wine and his face looks kind of off or contorted in some way, you're going to want to know what's going on, right? You know, why, why are you looking unlike you normally look when you're in my presence? It was obviously common for kings of this age to be assassinated with poison. So I think that's why this sadness is a big deal. Um, and so Artaxerxes makes this comment, and then Nehemiah gives the commentary that he was very much afraid. Um, while a sadness may have just been a social blunder in this festival atmosphere, it could have been much worse. It could have, I'm not sure, it could have been bad for his position. He could have been putting his position in jeopardy before the king. But in the midst of his fear, I think he sees his opening. Somehow, he sees that maybe this is the time that I need to do what I've been praying about. Now is the time, perhaps, to act on what I've been waiting for for these number of months. And so in verse 3, I think that he's still kind of testing the waters. He's not ready to, um, to quite say everything, but I think he's still kind of feeling out the king. Verse 3. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Now, notice, first of all, his reverence, that he gives this little phrase, O Lord, or may my king live forever. And we would see language like this elsewhere in scripture when men are referring to a king. And while it's not at all the scope of this lesson, I think there could be an entirely different lesson based on these couple of chapters of the way that a faithful Christian works in the employment of a heathen employer or a heathen boss. This little comment that he makes in verse 3 is appropriate. He is giving honor to Artaxerxes' position 
even though I don't think we should think that Artaxerxes was an honorable man. So he maintains respect, even though he's sad and afraid. And then some commentators think that what he says in verse 3 is actually, quote, a masterstroke of di diplomacy. Now, how could that be? Well, notice verse 3 that he doesn't use the word Jerusalem. He doesn't name the city by name. He simply says, the city, the place of my father's tombs. Now, obviously, Nehemiah is talking about Jerusalem. And I think we have every reason to believe that Artaxerxes knows that he's talking about Jerusalem. So why does Nehemiah do it this way? Well, it might help to understand a little bit more of the history of what had taken place during Ezra's time. So flip back real quick to Ezra chapter 4. We'll come back to Nehemiah pretty soon. Ezra chapter 4. While you're turning there, um, basically what we're going to see is during Ezra's time, apparently um, some of the Jews started to work on rebuilding Jerusalem's wall illegally. They didn't have authorization to do it. And some people, so I guess some non-Jews, saw what was happening and them trying to rebuild the wall, and actually, it could have been the Samaritans that saw this and didn't like it. We'll see why. And so they send a letter to King Artaxerxes, we see in Ezra chapter 4, letting him know, or making sure that he does know, that the Jews are starting to rebuild the wall. Let's read this letter, Ezra chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. This is the copy of the letter which they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, then they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings." Now because we are in service of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore we have sent and informed the king, so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers, and you will discover in the record books and learn that the city is a rebellious city, and damaging to kings and provinces, and that they have incited revolt within it in past days. Therefore that city was laid waste. We inform the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Do you see the problem? That before Nehemiah was in front of Artaxerxes, many years before this, many years before this, as I mentioned before, Cyrus issued the decree for the Jews to begin to return, he issued the decree for the temple to be rebuilt. And for some reason, the Persian kings... Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, they found it politically expedient for the Jews to be able to worship in the way they wanted to. Thus, they were fine. They were perfectly fine with having the temple rebuilt and allowing the Jews to worship in the way they wanted to and to live in their land. But they still expected that the Jews would still pay tribute, pay toll, pay tax into the Persian treasury. They didn't really see the land as God's land. The Persians thought it was still their land. They were going to let the Jews live there, but they still wanted to be paid and for the Jews to still somewhat be in submission to the Persian monarchy. So 
when this rebuilding began to occur, rebuilding the walls in Ezra chapter 4, as I said before, a city's wall is a city's defense. And so I think the implication must have been, and this is what the Samaritans or whoever wrote the letter was getting at, is that Artaxerxes, if you let these people build the wall, then they're going to keep you out, keep foreign powers out, and they're not going to pay you any more tribute because they're not going to be in subjection to you anymore. Do you see that line of thinking? So then let's see how Artaxerxes responds to this letter. Verse 17. Then the king sent an answer to Rehum the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and across the rest of the provinces around the river. Peace. And now the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me, and a decree has been issued by me, and a search has been made, and it has been discovered that that city has risen up against the kings in past days that rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it, that mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river, and that tribute, custom, and toll were paid to them. So now issue a decree to make these men stop work, that the city may not be rebuilt until the decree is issued by me, and be aware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shemshai, the scribe, and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. So, do you see Nehemiah's position? That this was still King Artaxerxes, same king, and he had issued a decree sometime before stating that Jerusalem was an evil and rebellious city and the wall was not to be rebuilt. And yet, think about what Nehemiah wants to do. Perhaps that is why Nehemiah is kind of still feeling out the water. Um, I think if he mentioned the city by name, no doubt there were other people in the throne room that day. I don't think this was just a private conversation between Nehemiah and Artaxerxes. If he had used the name Jerusalem, it could have elicited quite a response from other people that were listening. I think this shows that he has clearly been thinking about his strategy. He's literally been thinking about the words he wants to use as he's asking Artaxerxes this question. Perhaps he's thinking, how can I ask this in the most non-threatening way possible? And so he appeals to two things in verse 3. First of all, he appeals to his own sadness. He says, why should my face not be sad? And then he appeals to something I think that perhaps he thought that he and Artaxerxes may have had in common. As he refers to the city as the place of my father's tombs, which lies desolate. Now, interestingly, the, the typical Persian way of dealing with the dead, just common folk that died, apparently, they weren't buried. They were just left out and exposed to let the wild animals do their thing. But the Persian kings were given proper burials, placed in tombs. And of course, we know that it was the Jewish custom to have respect for the dead, place their dead bodies in tombs. And so I think that Nehemiah is looking for some common ground, trying to find something that Artaxerxes might sympathize with. If, in fact, he is a trusted friend of Artaxerxes, then maybe his own sadness will appeal to the king 
And then perhaps it might also elicit compassion considering the fact that this place of tombs, which should be a respectful place for the dead, lies desolate. So he's looking for this compassion from the king. See what happens in verse 4. Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Really, the king's responding pretty well. You know, so far, so good. He's still asking questions. He hasn't shut down the dialogue. And I think the most important thing to notice in verse 4 is that Nehemiah says that he prayed again. And we don't know what he prayed, but I think it must have been a quick prayer. I don't think that he could, could have lingered too long before responding back to Artaxerxes' question. This is one of those prayers that you and I pray when the need is great, but there is no time. So, Lord, please, Lord, help. Very brief, called out to the Lord, he prayed, and then he responds in verse 5. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. So he makes a request, but he still doesn't use the word Jerusalem. He still calls it the same thing, the city of my father's tombs. And again, I think Artaxerxes must have known what Nehemiah was talking about. But he simply says that I may rebuild it. Perhaps, again, he's still being cautious. I think it makes sense given what we saw in Ezra chapter 4. But he still wasn't quite ready to just outright and say it. I want to rebuild the walls. I don't think he's being coy or deceptive. I think he's being wise and careful. I think that in his time of waiting and praying, he had come to believe what Nehemiah thought God's will was, would please him the most, was that the walls would get rebuilt. But I think Nehemiah is trying to go about it as carefully as possible to try to see if he can do whatever he can to really see if that can really happen. So verse 6. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. Artaxerxes' question is also his answer. He basically said, yes. How long will it take? How long will you be gone? I don't think that any of us should have expected that to be the answer. Given what Artaxerxes himself had determined about Jerusalem in the past, an evil, rebellious city whose wall was not to be rebuilt. And yet here he is telling Nehemiah, how long do you need? How long will it take? If we just might briefly consider, again, God's providence here, I think God had Nehemiah at the right place at the right time, and Nehemiah had been humbly, I think, praying for the right place and the right time, the right occasion, and I think this shows us, among other things, that um, a faithful servant of God who's willing to be humble and pray and wait for the right opportunities, God can do amazing and unexpected things. I think if Nehemiah had barged into the throne room and said, here's what I want to do, I think it would have turned out very differently. But God is working in this entire exchange, I think. And then, really, after Artaxerxes gives the answer, 
Um, Nehemiah takes it a step further, and we might think that this is um, kind of rash, what he does next. It is bold, but I don't think it's rash. Look at verses 6 and 7. I'm sorry, 7 and 8. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he might give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of God, of my God, was on me. So Nehemiah knew that he would need a couple of things at least in order to do this. First of all, he would need authorization to do so. The work that was stopped in years past was because it wasn't authorized. So he asked for letters of authorization, letters to be given, um, also so that he would be given safe passage from Susa to Jerusalem. No doubt Nehemiah took men with him. He wouldn't have gone by himself. A group of men traveling with building materials and supplies likely could have run into trouble along the way. And so he asked for these letters to give him safe passage. And then even more boldly, he asked for building materials to build, rebuild the very wall that Artaxerxes said in the past is not going to get rebuilt. He asked for letters of the keeper of the king's forest. Apparently kings have forests. And he asked for wood for the gates and for other things. Now I think that obviously the wall was going to be made out of stone. It wasn't going to be a wooden wall. But even today, stone walls that are built require wood for scaffolding, for false works for the gates themselves. So Nehemiah asks for building materials. And he gets it. He gets everything that he asked for. It says, the king granted them to me, and this is perhaps the really important thing to see, because the good hand of my God was on me. I don't think that we can understand Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2 in any other way other than what we saw last week with Daniel, when we looked at the ways that God's sovereignty works together with our praying, I think this is a perfect example of that right here. Nehemiah's prayers and God's sovereignty work together right here in front of us. That he gets everything that he asked for because of the good hand of his God. It wasn't because the request wasn't granted because Artaxerxes was a swell guy or because Nehemiah was a clever guy. It was because the hand of God was upon him. So, we've seen the prayer prayed, we've seen it answered. How might this help us to pray? Um, first of all, praying in order to wait. Praying in order to wait. As I said before, there were two kind of time stamps given. Um, initially in chapter 1, we saw that it was several days that he spent praying, fasting, mourning. And then chapter 2 takes place four or five months after this. It's another interval of time. I think in all of this, Nehemiah was praying and waiting, as I noted before, waiting for the right time before he acted. So praying in order to wait. I think we should admit, first of all, that this is hard to do. Nobody likes to wait. We live in a quick response, immediate gratification culture. Nobody wants to wait. But perhaps there's two reasons why Nehemiah was praying and waiting. Um, I think, first of all, 
that he wanted to determine what would be most pleasing to the Lord. So he hears the report from Hanani. It's a bad report. It grieves him greatly. I think he wanted to determine, Lord, what would please you most given what I've just heard? And it would have taken time for him to figure that out. So first of all, determining what would be most pleasing to the Lord. And then secondly, to determine what he might do to bring that about. So I think in the midst of his waiting and praying, he determined the most pleasing thing to God would be to rebuild the walls, give Jerusalem the protection that it needed again. And then how might he do that? Well, he determined that he could go before Artaxerxes and carefully present his request to him. I think he was praying and planning in order to do that which was most pleasing to God. We know 2 Corinthians 5.9, we have it as our ambition. Whether home or absent, that's dead or alive, to be pleasing to the Lord. I think Nehemiah was taking his time to make sure that what he was going to do would be pleasing to the Lord. And so for us, I mean, obviously we can think of situations, not exactly like this, but like this. A difficult situation, we're presented with something, we're not really sure what we should do, we know we should do something. But perhaps the first thing we should do is spend some time praying and simply waiting. Waiting to see. Waiting to see what might please God the most. That can take time. Um, Just brief examples, you know, what might this be? You could probably think of your own examples. You think about kind of opportunities placed before you. A business opportunity, a ministry opportunity, an opportunity to um, counsel someone. Um opportunity to do something different with your children's schooling, whether or not to take or leave a job, whether or not to let, let, to bring a family member to come live with you in your home, how to resolve a conflict with a loved one. You think about these scenarios, and I think we should make sure that we take the time to pray and wait before we take action. It may take days, it may even take months in some cases. I mean, it took Nehemiah quite a while before he took action. And he was praying in order to wait, but then the second thing is praying in order to take action. Praying in order to take action. Um, Someone else has said, I don't think this was original to me, um, we must not use prayer by itself as an excuse to do nothing else. We shouldn't just use prayer by, by itself as an excuse to do nothing else. Um, now I'm not sure that in Nehemiah's case, if he really initially knew that it was going to be him that was going to get to go back and lead the group to go rebuild the walls. Um, I mean, he may have gone before the king and asked him, can you send back Hanani and his company of men to go rebuild the wall? I don't know if Nehemiah knew immediately that it was going to be him But I think over time, as he prayed and waited, he must have come to the conclusion that I need to do this. But here I am. I'm the king's cupbearer. I'm not at liberty to leave. And how could it be me that's going to go do this? But I think somehow in his praying and his planning and his waiting, he determined that it would please the Lord the most if he himself would undertake the task. 
And, it, and I think, like I've said before, it came along with risk. There was risk for Nehemiah to even ask the question of the king. Came at, with risk to himself personally and his position as cupbearer. But I think that his time spent waiting and praying must have confirmed in him that he was the one that God was calling to do this. So perhaps another way to put this, praying in order to take action, might be that we should pray in such a way as that we are willing to let ourselves be a part of the answer. Pray in such a way that we would let ourselves be a part of the answer, to take an active role in the way God might answer the prayer. Now again, a few examples. You can think of your own. Here are a few. Um, If we're praying for someone, a brother or sister in Christ, going through a trial, obviously we're praying for them, that they would be comforted, they would be strengthened, so forth. Well, I think we should also be willing to do something for them while we're praying for them. And these don't have to be significant things, whether it's sending a card, writing a note, making a phone call, making a visit. Or if we're praying for a family that's sick, well, pray for them that they would be well, but also be willing to do something for them, be willing to take action in the midst of their difficulty, bring a meal, offer to help with the children. If you're praying for an unsaved neighbor, this should be obvious to us. If we're praying for anyone in our circle of friends or coworkers that's unsaved, that they might be saved, well, then we should be willing to share the gospel with them, that we might be the means by which that prayer is answered. Or if we're praying for wisdom for an important decision we need to make, well, then we should also be taking action to get the wisdom that God has given us in his word and seek counsel from our trusted Christian friends. Or if we're praying for God to deliver us from a besetting sin or from a strong temptation, then while we're praying that, we should be willing to take action to put to death the deeds of the body to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Um, I would submit to you that Nehemiah's prayer and Artaxerxes' answer, God's answer through Artaxerxes to the prayer, shows us that sometimes prayer is not enough. Now that may make us kind of feel uncomfortable to hear that statement. How can prayer not be enough? Well, It is true that sometimes all we can do is pray. There's plenty of times when we have no control over the given, over the situation, and so all we can do is pray. But there are other times that we need to do more than that. That we need to be willing to do, help do the thing, help be a part of what we believe God wants to do, not just in praying, but also in taking action. To take action as we're praying. Now, Nehemiah's request that he might be given favor and success and compassion with Artaxerxes, um, that prayer might never have been answered if Nehemiah hadn't actually done something. Now, you, you could imagine a scenario where Nehemiah prayed and he was just hopeful, Lord, someday, someday, Lord, perhaps, Artaxerxes might just look at me and say, Nehemiah, you know, I've been thinking, would you like to go and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem? Well, I don't think that that would have been 
really very faithful on Nehemiah's part. Yes, perhaps someday God may have answered his prayer that way, totally just prompted Artaxerxes to take the initiative. But I think what was more faithful, and Nehemiah willing to take a risk and take action, was that to see himself as part of the answer to his prayer. So, um, he moved carefully, he moved patiently, and he was waiting and praying during that time until he could best determine what God's timing was and what might be most pleasing to the Lord so that he finally took action when he did. So, thus ends six weeks of prayers and praise of the Old Testament. Um, on your handout at the bottom, I went ahead and listed all of the things we've seen, at least the things that I've come up with. You may think of others in these prayers, ways that we can apply these prayers to our prayer lives. Fourteen things that we looked at over the past six weeks. Um, maybe just one thing to say about that in summary. When you look at that list of 14 things, um, and you think about what we've seen over the past six weeks, I was kind of looking for a quick summary statement. Is there something that ties all of this together? And, and really, perhaps the best I came up with is that over and over again, each of these prayers we've seen, and I think it's reflected in that, in that list on the page, is that all of these prayers are Godward focused. They're all Godward focused. Um, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. And what does that mean for us? Well, I think that if we are going to pray in the way that Scripture gives us prayers, then our prayers should be the same. Now, obviously, that doesn't mean that we can't ask for things and pray for things for ourselves and for our loved ones. But more than anything, what I've seen, aside from God's richness of his character and his grace displayed in the Old Testament, I've seen that if the primary, if the thing that I'm spending most of my time doing in prayer is asking things of God to bless me, to bless others, to heal me, to heal others, to do this, to do that. If most of my prayer is working through a list of requests, I don't think I'm praying the way that Scripture tells us to pray. Now, obviously, yes, we pray for those things. We must, because God is able to change those situations. So we pray for them. But primarily, what I think I've seen is that these prayers are Godward-focused. The men that prayed for themselves or about themselves, it was all in confession. If they were focusing on themselves, it was because they were confessing their sin. Otherwise, they were focused on the Lord, his character, and who he was. So, I think I may have finished on time. So let's pray, and then Matt will come. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example that it gives us. Um, thank you for the um, clear indications you give us of your grace and your love toward us throughout the scripture, throughout the Bible. Um, and Lord, that should give us confidence. Lord, give me confidence as I pray um, in your character, in your love toward us. Um, and Lord, let us um, continue to know you more in prayer and whether you would be honored in the way that we pray and that you would use our prayers to bring yourself glory um, 
more so than anyone else. And I ask in Jesus' name, amen.